as Jesus is continuing his mission, if you notice in Matthew, it goes from a few sections of him talking to doing to talking and doing. There's a Sermon on the Mount where he talked a lot. And then there's a series of verses that we're working through right now where he's doing a lot. And shortly after this, he's going to begin talking more. And then he's going to be doing more. And then after his final discourse, he's going to quit talking and he's going to go to the cross for you and me. Because he's a man of action. And that is what I love about reading through particularly the Gospel of Matthew is you see Matthew showing you Jesus. That he is not just a talker. He is a man of action and decision. And thank God for him. Thank the Father for giving us the Son. That he moves and acts on our behalf. That you and I are saved because Jesus acted. Here is Jesus trying to bring along his disciples to learn to act like him. To be definitive and disciplined and driven in their decisions to act. To only do a few things in your life and do them very, very well. And here's Jesus explaining to his disciples, I've given you power and authority to go, begin doing the things that I've called you to do, things that I once was doing. And these are his, what we call his 12 apostles, his 12 most closest disciples. And Jesus sends them out. And as he sends them, today we will discuss how he warned them. He warned them knowing exactly what he is putting them in harm's way, that they should expect and be prepared for persecution. Before we get there, let us pray. Father, Lord, we understand that persecution is part of this life if we claim to be part of the body of Christ. And Father, we ask that you would prepare us, Lord, for persecution. Not in the sense that we are asking for it, desire it, or even necessarily thinking it will happen. But Lord, we must have the same resolution that you had for us. That you were persecuted for us. That you took on the nails. You took on the cross. Your commitment to us was so great. Father, we ask this morning that you would show us the love of your Son. And that his love for us, his ability to give up his own life for us, would be the solidifying depth of our conviction in him. That we would be committed as he is committed to us. That we would, if put in the place, as a result of being transformed by your words this morning, be given the grace and determination to even make our final stand, our final witness, even with our life, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we do not want this. We do not ask for this. We hate this. But we know, Lord, that this is part of our discipleship. To be able to entertain these thoughts this morning of what it really means to be a Christian. Lord, we confess that we are very superficial. Our culture is very superficial. The Christian evangelical church is about one inch deep and would seem to buckle under five pounds of pressure. Lord, we understand our history. We understand 
who your disciples are. And Lord, we pray that you would make us strong. That we would not be driven by fads or things of picking churches based on various proclivities or interests. But at the end of the day, Lord, it is a matter of even giving up our own life for the witness of Jesus Christ and his beauty. Lord, teach us this day what it means to say that we believe that Jesus is Lord. Amen. And so as he sends out the twelve, he says this, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you will speak or what you will say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father his children. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, and a servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those in his household? If they called the master of the house, Jesus referring to himself, Beelzebul, which is the name for Satan. So if they call him, the master of the house, demonic, then Jesus is setting the stage for you and I to entertain the fact, to identify ourselves with the present reality, that if you dare to identify yourself with Jesus, you will also be identifying yourself with the slanders of Jesus, and therefore the persecution of Jesus. That the very image of the symbol of our salvation is the cross. It is the cross. So without a doubt, you've seen uh, the news reports and you have the images vividly pictured upon your mind, most likely, of at least you've seen the video of a hundred or so people chasing a plane in Afghanistan or a handful of people sitting on the wing of the plane as it's beginning to take off. Some sitting within the landing gear. That image is circulated through the week, throughout the news cycle. The Cabal International Airport flooded with people trying to get out of the country because they know exactly what's coming next. Young men riding on the plane gear. Some videos of them actually falling from a height. Women handling their infants over to random soldiers to cross over a wall so that they might never see their child again but understanding the reality that their child's life might be better off 
if they can get across that wall and be, in any of your effective sense, dead to the child? There's a man named Alassani, who is an Afghani, who lives in Europe right now. He came over to Europe in the late 80s when his parents were killed. And he was video calling a friend of his, a family, that was presently living in Afghanistan. And he noticed in the video that the woman he was speaking with immediately fell to the ground. And then shortly after the call ended... And he was deeply concerned, so he called back, and eventually he got in contact with her again. And he said uh, that the woman told him that she had to duck immediately and turn the phone off because they are looking for Christians door to door. And that was the moment they were walking by. Now, that's not Fox News or CNN. That's just a personal story of a man named Alassani, who's an eyewitness that they are looking for Christians right now door to door. There's another man by the name of Brother Firas who takes that alias. He says uh, they will kill uh, the well-known Christians in the community first in order to spread fear. They already have posters appearing in the town um, that if there are any single girls 15 and older, they have to be married to the Taliban soldiers and be taken from their Christian parents. Christians fear their daughters will be taken away from them by force to marry Taliban and then indoctrinated in the Madras. He said that the parents might be killed, they might not be killed. One man received a letter from the Taliban saying that his home belonged to them now. This is not some idea This is not some theology. This is not some philosophy. This is just the news. This is just the world we live in. And it so happened to be that we are here in Matthew. And this is Jesus. Simply saying, behold. Which is another way the translators would say the word that you and I use in our regular vernacular is look. That's all behold means. Look. So when you're crossing the street, say, hey, look, there's a bus. Look out. And here's Jesus saying, Behold, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Before his men would go out, he's telling them, You need to know what this is. There are reasons demons fled out of men when Jesus approached them. There are reasons rationally decent people can do marvelously wicked things. It's because we are in a spiritual war. And these 12 men are not going around trying to sell vacuums door to door. That's not, Jesus is not marketing. This isn't a Ponzi scheme. He's not making a pyramid where he's here and there's 12 and then there's 70 and now it's this whole Christian church. It's just some big scheme about how we can sell Jesus. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is glory and truth. He is righteousness. And he came in this world in flesh and blood to take back what the devil stole. 
And the devil will not give that up easily. This is spiritual war. And he warns his men whom he will send to battle that some of you, in fact, 11 out of 12 of you, will die doing this. So behold, look, pay attention. I am sending you as sheep among wolves. I told you to take no money bags. Don't even take a sword. Go. It's definitive. Why would Jesus say to do this? Go and preach the gospel. Do not cut them with that sword. Cut them with your words. Preach that gospel. Preach it pure. Preach it white hot in clarity so that they want to kill you. That means you're preaching it well. If they're not offended, they're not understanding what you're saying. Because you're going into these cities to wipe the dust off their feet to say they are condemned in their sin to die. Everything they hold righteous and dear in their culture and society is demonic and evil and wicked. And Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you preach that, people will be offended. And if you preach that to power, if you preach that to the power structures of society, then they will kill you. And Jesus is saying clearly, make no mistake, that is exactly what we are doing right now. And they are wolves. And you are just sheep. So this definition of persecution that Jesus lays out, he says, beware of men. See, he lays out these animals. He says, first off, you are sheep. And then he speaks of serpents. And then he speaks of doves. Look at all these images for who you and I are. First off, we are sheep. We are fools. We are not strong. We have no power of our own. We need Jesus Christ to guide us. We are a walking buffet for every carnivore in the field. Apart from the shepherd, we have nothing. But then he says, because you are sheep, look at these other animals. There are also serpents and doves. The serpent is an image for wisdom, craftiness, cunning, how it's hard to find snakes when you see them, they slither away too quick. But when you back a snake up into a corner, you could have a problem. Be a snake, don't pick a fight, avoid a fight. An image of being wise, looking around, but all for the purpose of being cunning, wise, with no intent to ever harm anybody. Be a snake and a dove, a dove. Those gentle bird, they get scared of its own shadow. And I mean like literally, when I leave my house in the morning sometimes, underneath the deck, there's like these, uh, they're like, I, maybe I don't know stuff. They're like <laughs> flowers. I think they're weeds, but they, they have petals that are colorful and I like them, so I don't pull them out. <laughs> and so to me, they're flowers. You might say they're not, but either way, in the morning, these doves get nested in there. Sometimes. And when I leave my house in the morning sometimes, if it's early enough, and I walk down the stairs, I scare them. And then they scare me really bad. Because then they're like right to the next of my, my uh, stairs. And they just fly straight off, like five or six of them. And it just scares me so much. It startles me. I usually drop my coffee or something close. But see, they're petrified of just me walking by. They're doves. They're just so gentle. So be that way. This is how we fight the world like doves. 
like doves. But there's another animal in all of these metaphors, and one is called the wolf. He says, beware the wolf. And then he says, beware of men. So who are the wolves? Men. They look like you. They smell like you. They talk like you. But these spiritual metaphors are saying some in their hearts are not doves. They just aren't. It's like trying to ask a wolf to eat a salad. They just don't want it. They're just wolves. They're evil. They're violent. Watch for them. Watch for them. Beware of these men. Remember Jesus is warning this. As he knows out of one of these twelve is a wolf. And will betray him. This expansive warning comes because we're seeing that this mission that Jesus is giving them is not just for them. It is expansive to us all. See, he says, beware of these men, these wolves, for they will deliver you over. They will even act to be your friends. They will come alongside you and say, oh yeah, tell me more about this Jesus guy. And then pretty soon you're in court because they went. They will hand you over to the courts, to the synagogue, to be flogged. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness to them to the Gentiles. Do you remember earlier where Jesus said, now don't go to the Gentiles, just go to the Jews and preach. But here Jesus is giving a larger warning to say, you will start there. You will keep going out. And what started in the synagogues with the Jews will end with the civil courts and the kings. There were no Jews, there were civil courts and kings in that time. All the Gentiles were that. And he's saying, you actually go straight to those courts and you will be dragged against your volition before them to give an account for why you're saying that Caesar is not Lord. You would claim, just say Caesar is Lord. Just, maybe you don't believe it, but just say it. And they wouldn't. Because Jesus really is Lord. And if you just don't think that Jesus is kind of Lord... And will we say, well, Jesus is Lord of my heart and he's my religion. That's not the kind of gospel that gets you persecuted. That's the gospel Rome loved. Because they had a whole pantheon of gods. All you had to do was say Jesus is a God. Or he's my personal God. Or he is the one I believe in in my heart and in my mind. But it doesn't really affect my life or politics or ethics. I.e. evangelical America. Well then Fine. You can have that Jesus. But if you're going to say Jesus is like, I don't know, really Lord? Over everything? Physical and spiritual? Family? Politics? Government? Business? Sex? Marriage? You do that. Well, now this verse makes sense. Now all of a sudden, Rome realized they really think this guy's king. Like king, king. Like with a crown now, like he should run this world. Well, Rome can't have that. You're going to go to court over that one. And Jesus warns them and says, you will be dragged to these high places. The cause of the persecution. So the definition of persecution is a clear privation of liberty on account of Jesus. The cause, he says, is that you will be hated By all for my name's sake. The one who endures to the end will be saved. He says the disciple is not above his teacher and a slave is not above his master. If you are going to follow me, you will begin to talk like me and walk like me. And you will 
You will overturn tables like me. You will speak to power like me. Jesus called Herod a fox in the feminine, in the Greek, which is pretty insulting. That was a political authority. Jesus called him a fox. John the Baptist said that John the Baptist meddled in Herod's personal life and says he shouldn't be married to so-and-so. And John got his head chopped off. Well, if he just wouldn't have said that, he would have went well for him. But the problem is, that's not how the gospel works. You actually have to preach the gospel in every realm of life. Because Jesus is Lord of every realm of life. And that's going to create a lot of problems in the real world. There's stages and levels to persecution. So, he begins by clearly laying out the fact that they call him Beelzebul. So when we say in our common vernacular, if you want to put someone aside so that um, they're looked down upon, we call that demonizing them. You just put a label on them, put a racist title on them, put some type of ethno or economic title on them, just bring them into some ghetto, a psychological ghetto of the general mind of society, and then they're in a place where they can begin to be ostracized and persecuted. But first you have to label them. You have to do the sinful thing of slandering someone. And so here's Jesus. He is Beelzebul. They literally didn't demonize him. They said he is the demon. And so they say, here's Jesus, Beelzebul. And the first stage of any persecution is that. Labeling a people group. That's what happens before bad things. And then they're alienated. They're singled out. They're not allowed to participate in various things. They're put in different parts of society, different regions of the geography. And then what follows usually would be the verbal threats. Verbal threats, for example, in Acts 23, there was a group of men who said, 40 Jews said, I will not eat. They took a vow not to eat by simply verbalizing this reality. We will not eat until we have killed Paul, the apostle, in Acts 23. And... Believe it or not, Paul took that seriously. It wasn't like, oh, there he is just being rude on Twitter. No, they verbally said, we are taking a vow. We will not eat again until Paul is dead. And Paul heard that. And like a good sheep, he, he ran. He ran. That's, that's being wise, being sensitive, discerning the times, having your ear to the ground, listening to what people are saying. How are the groups being divided? And what threats are actually being made? And when those verbalizations come, Jesus says, behold, look, pay attention to this. Now, as Christians, there is some type of, now, especially in dispensational circles, there's this thing to look for persecution. End times, uh, you're going to get raptured off the earth and all this stuff. And it's just like, we're not looking for persecution. We don't want persecution. And the reality is, we don't want to fake as though we're being persecuted when we're really not. For example, when someone actually is being persecuted, when verbal threats are really being made, it would be like in the ICC, the International Christian Concern website, news article says that uh, Afghanis, the report says, are receiving phone calls to their house where all the person on the other line is saying is, we know you're Christian and we are coming for you. That is persecution. Now granted, if the church were to lose its tax-exempt status, yes, that would be a level of persecution, but that's also a privilege we used to share at a Christian nation that we once were. But this, can you imagine picking up the phone and getting that? 
we know you're a Christian and we're coming for you and we know this is your number and we know where you live. How are you going to sleep ever again? That is persecution. Verbal threats. And what usually follows then is them actually acting on it. Real physical violence. And Jesus says this, a brother will be delivered, delivering over another brother to death. Fathers giving up their children. In Islam, that is very common. If a child converts to Christ, they are ostracized, cut off, if not killed. So news report that one man was hung because his children were Christians. It says children will even rise up against parents and put them to death. One story of this was actually very moving for me. I remember hearing this from a theologian named Richard um, Gamble. And this paints a picture for what it really is all about. You might have heard of a theologian named John Calvin. He had a very big influence in the Reformation era. He wrote a book, um, two-volume work called The Institutes. And it's been very influential in shaping the church. Now, when these kind of people, Calvin, Thomas Aquinas, Jonathan Edwards, Augustine, when they die, they usually leave behind a very large library. Because these are some of the pivotal scholarly points in church history. And they put together uh, and synthesized so much information that it, it set the church off into a new era of intellectual discovery and then later development. And so we can find Thomas Aquinas's old library. We have all his extant books that he left. Same with Luther or Augustine. We don't have any books for Thomas Aquinas. We don't know, he had no library. And I'll never forget knowing why he had no library. In Geneva, Switzerland, where he based his ministry, he established a seminary. It was a three-year seminary where the men would come and be trained for the Reformation, trained properly in the Scriptures. And he would train these men, and there was no dormitories, and they're usually young and single. And so they would live with him. He would train them. And then he would send them off into the ministry. And they would send them. John Calvin was a French man. He fled France for persecution and lived most of his days in Switzerland. Now when he sent his men out, he sent a good portion of them back to France. The Protestant French were called Huguenots or Huguenots. And he sent them out. John spoke French, of course. He trained a lot of French men. And when he sent them out, mind you, from his personal house of living with these men for three years... They usually were single and married. And then by the time they finished their education, they would usually be married at that point and start having young, small children. He sent them out knowing this reality that remained true the whole course of his life. That one third of every graduating class he sent would be dead in three years. Now, it didn't happen for two or three years. That didn't happen for the first five years of the seminary's ministry. That ratio held true through his whole life. That after every three or so years, one third, if the graduating class was 15, within three years, five of those pastors would be dead. 
The French government worked with the papacy to establish an elite core of assassins who would look to find where pastors were in France. They would not approach them during the day. They would not go near them in the church, lest the congregation defend them. They found out where they lived. They waited till they were sleeping. They kicked in the front door. They walked into the bedroom. They killed him in his sleep, and they left. And so John Calvin had a network of underground houses, safe houses, from one side of France to Switzerland for these mothers and their small children to find refuge again after their father and husband was slaughtered in the night. And so they would go from house to house to find the underground network of houses ended at John Calvin's own house. And so the reason we have no books from John Calvin is because it was a common occurrence throughout the course of his whole life that in the middle of the night, he would be awoke to a rap on the door with a woman weeping in her nightgown, covered in blood, with small children crying by her side. And there was no money, and he would take one of his books off the shelf, go to the man around the corner to pawn it for cash, so that he could get sheets and fooding for them to sleep that night. And that's why he had no books. Because he did this every year. This is the spiritual war that we are in. Now the deception of this war is to become tribal. See, the schemes of Satan, if the rulers of this world knew what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan works with the sword. He kills. He creates anger and jealousy. And he thought that would work. And so, of course, kill the son. Kill the son. But him killing that son opened up a Pandora's box of righteousness that he cannot fix. He broke his own system of violence. The reality to say The stories of persecution are not man against man. There are evil forces behind the Catholic persecution of the Protestants. The Muslims destroying Afghanis right now. It is not the Muslims per se. Yes, they are guilty in their own sin and their own wickedness and their own evil hearts love this man-made religion of theirs. And it gives them excuse to exercise the inlaid and sinful desires of violence that they have within their own DNA. But spiritual forces are at play. There are demonic doctrines that are manipulating these men as they go door to door in Afghanistan to find Christians. They think they are doing righteousness. The Jews killed Jesus because they thought he was a blasphemer. They killed the Christians because they thought they were a dangerous heretical cult. They thought they were doing righteousness. This is not pure evil. It is pure evil disguised under deception. And that is how persecution spreads. And so Jesus warns all of this to say, even the greatest irony of all, if you ever wonder why there's not a lot of churches in Afghanistan, it's because they kill Christians. If you ever wonder why there's not a lot of Protestant churches in France, it's because of St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. 
Like we don't want persecution. It never is good for the church. It hinders everything that's happening. But one of the disciples who Jesus warns in this text, his name was Nathaniel. Another name for Nathaniel is Bartholomew. And shortly after Calvin died and lost all of his seminarians, one third every three years, there was this thing called literally the most ironic name of all. As the disciple was warned to watch out for wolves, there's a day called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in which three to 30,000 Protestant Christians were slaughtered within around 24 hours. They were trying to assassinate one man. The assassination failed. And so what happened, starting in all the major cities, is all the key leaders in the Protestant Reformation who held to the scriptures were slaughtered. And then it's hard to pick the numbers because the, the bloodbath just spread out to the farmlands. And they really don't know how many people died. Now what is that? It wasn't even planned that way. They wanted to kill one man. Do you realize? They wanted to kill. It, in 17... In 1572, August 23rd, a year tomorrow as being an anniversary of this St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in France, they wanted to kill a man named Gaspard de Coligny. He was a French Huguenot who rose to be an admiral in the French army, and he had political power, and they did not want that in a Catholic country. So they wanted to kill one man. They failed. They didn't get him. And so the next few days, they tried to get him again. But what happened is it hit to a kinetic effect in which all sorts of Catholics started killing all sorts of Protestants, and they couldn't stop it. Do you think? Do you, it wasn't organized that way. There is a spiritual war of violence behind this. There are demonic forces trying to get one of us to kill the other. It just doesn't make sense. Why would 30, almost 30,000 people potentially die without even planning it? This is demonic warfare. And the greatest malady, the greatest solution to all this is found in the gospel. And closing with this before we do communion, consider this. Consider the reality that it is Jesus Christ, his gospel, that undoes all of this. It undoes all of this evil that we have toward one another. That the essential gospel preach is that we do not fight. Our Savior was killed. He was persecuted. See, he did not flee. Jesus is telling his men to flee. Try to save your life. He did not fight. He did not debate. He was before Pontius Pilate, dragged before his court, asked to give an account for his life, and said nothing. Because Jesus' words, which are a warning at the very end of all of this, he says, you would not have went throughout all the town of Israel before the Son of Man has come. I love that phrase. You will not have finished the mission I've given you before me, the Son of Man, in Daniel 7, has come. I am going to go be killed by them. The point of me being killed by them is that I will be the son of man in Daniel 7 who ascends to the highest of the kingdom and is enthroned with the ancient of days to be given all dominion, authority, and power. So now you and I are in a position. See, the sword is not more powerful than the pen. This is the gospel. This is what separates the West. Not because we're better, because we figured something out because of Jesus. 
The sword is not more powerful than the pen. The tongue is more powerful than the blade. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against this. No money bags, no extra sandals, don't you take a tunic. Go out there and preach the gospel until they kill you. And he promises this. The gates of hell will not prevail against such a weapon. And you might never have made this connection before. The gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of hell are defensive. We are on the offense. That's the mission. Go out there and preach the gospel to their defensive gates. And those gates will fall. You might die, but you will not lose. And the lie of statism or Islam, secular humanism, or any other man-made philosophy is they do not understand this truth. That when Jesus ascended to the heavens, he was given all dominion and power and authority. And he will win. But we will fight with his war and with his weapons. The gospel will beat the sword. This is the mission of our Messiah. It extends to you today. It is very successful. There are more Christians being persecuted today than ever in human history. Because there are more Christians today than ever in human history. Let us pray. Dear Father. We pray, Father, as we come to your table now, that we would make this commitment true. That we would make this commitment honest and firm. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us. And so that we would see what you have called us to. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they are mighty for the pulling down of every stronghold. And every rebellious thing that exalts itself against the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, we make that profession before you today at this table. In Christ's name, amen.